So we are now going to think about um, facts, um, imaginative insights and metaphors, the um, material nature, I guess, of um, illness and embodiment, and really how all of this converges at an interface between a patient and a healthcare professional, how these themes, I guess, play out um, in reality and how they perhaps ought to play out. And so for this, I would like you all please to welcome uh, to the stage Iona Heath, who until at least 15 minutes ago was president of the Royal College of GPs, Jane McNaughton uh, from Durham University, and Richard Horton, uh, editor of The Lancet. Can any of you play the piano? My daughter can, over there. Uh, I hold a world record. I've had piano lessons for eight years, and my summit of my achievement was to pass grade two by one mark. I have never heard of a worse record. <laughs> a year ago, I took up the piano accordion, so does that count? Yeah, we, we might get you on ten ago. Um, thank you all for coming to Medicine Unboxed. I just wondered if we might start by thinking a bit about, um, we've been thinking about a lot about data on the one hand, which is true for uh, perhaps, well, we've challenged the truth of it, but arguably true for a population of patients. And then we're faced in our clinics and ward rounds with a patient who is utterly individual and how we draw uh, generalised knowledge to not just the treatment but the care of an individual patient and what it is, I guess, to, this is a long question, what it is to um, have insight um, and clinical judgment as opposed to necessarily just a pure appraisal of technical facts. And I might actually start, Jane, if I may, by, by asking you for your thoughts on this. Yes, you, I was slightly anxious because you started talking about clinical judgment, which is something that I looked at quite a number of years ago when I, I wrote a book with Robin Downey as a result of my PhD thesis. And it's funny how when you... when Because you, that, that book was, was an attempt, I think, to kind of bring together what I thought medicine was about under a sort of single sort of uh, idea. And I thought, well, okay, clinical, the notion of judgment brings together um, something about the kind of knowledge, skills, understanding, together with the insights, intuitions, and relationship that goes on in the consultation. But now when I, when I hear that mentioned, I think, golly, I've moved so far away from that. Um, and, in, and I was thinking, in what ways have I moved far away from that now? And I, I think the, the major way uh, to my mind, is that the whole interaction within a consultation is, to me, so much more complex than coming to a judgment, I suppose. I think that's really partly what it's about. And the, and the kind of word clinical being in there also seems wrong, too. Um, one of the things that strikes me now, I mean, my clinical practice is entirely within the field of cervical screening. 
No, because I spend so much time in academic work that it's a sort of circumscribed area. But on the other hand, when I think about the task that I undertake in my hospital-based clinic in that, it is, okay, driven by an algorithm, a particular kind of way of, of working, and there are only certain outcomes in a clinical sense from that interaction. But when a patient comes in the door, one's immediately alert to the attitude, the understanding, the, the way in which that patient is in relation to you as the person, the doctor. And so my first question is always one of, how are you? Uh, which I think if you ask that in a GP context, you get the presenting complaint. But for me, as somebody who these patients aren't presenting with a presenting complaint, the response is one of, how do you feel now in this situation coming into this context, which has got something a bit scary that might happen, mm. like an examination of the sort, and, and mixed with that understanding. And so what I'm kind of, I think within the consultation, my focus and understanding is one of, 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 of what is that, what is the nature of that interrelation between me, the person, the doctor, and the person of the patient? And what is happening at that, in that space between us, in a sense, um, where our two kind of ideas and notions and indeed our, our, our physical interaction are colliding and touching? Um, so it, it, and there's so many of the different themes that have come up so far interact within that uh, you know how does the patient think about their body the, the patient one of the things that uh, I'll stop in a minute. <laughs> one of the things that medicine I think I've come to realize has perhaps got it wrong and this comes out of working with social science colleagues is our idea of the person and of the human being as being in some sense um, static fully formed um, not a shifting kind of entity and when I began to realise that, that people shift and change and have this tremendous, amazing capacity to shift and change, you realise the power of that clinical interaction to nudge things the wrong way. So no matter how minor it is, the interaction that you're undertaking, you can be, you can be almost taken into a, a point of, of um, being... Uh, you know, gazing at the headlights with worry about how you might shift things. So each interaction, to me, has such extraordinary capacity, I think, for, for um, you know, shifting and, and setting people in the right or helpful or not-so-helpful ways. <clears throat> and so even within the consultation, rather than necessarily as an entity, mm. I guess, you know, many of us will recognise the experience of seeing you know you can always see it happening seconds yeah. behind you thinking this isn't going so well yeah, i yeah. said the wrong thing there now this kind of chain of events starting sure. with the, the fluttering of the butterfly's yes. wing 10 minutes ago i've now got this kind of storm yes. on my hands um yeah. how much of how much do you think um i know we're bringing our there's a notion perhaps of doctors as, as being evidence-based machines, but how much are we bringing our own prejudices and beliefs to that encounter in a way that might set things off down a particular route? Are, are we arriving with, you know, the, 
I am, I'm very aware that, so for example, there's 12 oncologists that work in our department and that we might spin things very differently in a consultation faced with exactly the same objectively clinical problem um, and may not necessarily even be conscious of the fact that we're spinning them differently because of um, versions of the world that we hold to be true, not necessarily because we've read a paper better uh, or a better evidence-based medicine than, than the person in the next room. Does that have any resonance, do you think? It's really interesting, isn't it? I think that we have tried as a service, if you like, to eradicate the subjectivity of the doctor, almost as much as we've tried to eradicate the subjectivity of the patient. Not, not, not quite as much, but, but nearly as much. Um, and, and, and that is, I think that's been a terrible error. I, I think there's more harm caused by trying to eradicate it than to acknowledge that people inevitably bring different subjective perspectives. If last week I gave a patient a tablet and they were dead within 24 hours, I would not be human if I didn't hesitate to give that, say, however evidence-based that tablet... Get, do you see what I mean? So we're informed by our histories, but I also think that patients want to have a conversation with a fellow human being, not with an encyclopedia. Um, but the... This whole thing about evidence is extraordinary in general practice because so little of what we see in general practice is covered by any useful evidence at all. It's something like 60% of consultations fall out of anything, anything that the diagnostic taxonomy would recognise. Um, I just want to, I think, point out, it's interesting this morning, we've covered a, such a lot of ground, but we haven't covered any critique of the diagnostic taxonomy. We had a sort of unitary notion of low back pain and migraine this morning. Um, and we haven't really challenged the uh, difference between physical and mental illness, which are huge overlapping areas. The, the government like to say that people with mental illness die earlier because their physical health is neglected by their psychiatrists, as opposed to looking at the same history of, of, of trauma and violence and neglect and abuse in childhood driving scarring of both the body and the mind. So in the, I feel as if we're coming, maybe it's just because I'm old, but I, I feel as if we're coming to the end of a particular medical paradigm and that in a way it's all up for grabs. The more we understand the power of biography to alter not only psychology but physiology, so that you are your body, Tim, um, and your biography has determined your body. Uh, 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 and the dreadful lack of justice where, where, where structural violence in unjust societies makes the poor... And we're seeing it happening right now with austerity, yeah. making the poor sicker. Yeah. So, So what is the, um, the hiatus in understanding that permits something like that to flourish? When you say we're underestimating the, the importance of biography, it's not, I guess it's, it's, there's something about that, isn't it? There's almost a, um, a worldview that precludes the immediate truth of that. How does that arise? I mean, Richard, have you got a view on that? In a consultation... 
there's so many different kinds of consultation, it's hard to talk about one particular state. I mean, if somebody, and heaven forbid, clutches their chest in the audience now, and they've got a thrombus in their left anterior descending coronary artery, and you know, the heart's contractility is weakening and the blood flow is slowing and the brain is dying. You know, notions of conversation, interaction and subjectivity may not be the most appropriate response. Um, what we actually want is somebody who's moderately well qualified, jumping on their chest, a bit of external cardiac massage and somebody else calling an ambulance. Um, on the other hand, there will be other moments when uh, we want a very different response. Um, I mean, at the risk of being called narcissistic, um, I mean, just to give you, I, I happen to, every doctor should be a patient, I think, is a very good rule of life. Um, and I happen to um, have a consultation last week. Um, and where does the consultation begin? I mean, it doesn't begin in the clinic or in front of the doctor. The consultation begins the moment you set out on your journey. It was a particularly bad day in London and I was struggling through the rain and the wind and my umbrella blew out and I caught the bus and, and got to was at University College um, in London. I got to the Rosenheim building where my appointment said I had to be for 2.40 and I went to the third floor where I always go. It was empty. I thought I'd reached heaven or hell maybe because the, the entire floor was completely gone. I went downstairs and the only person in the building um, was this lovely lady in the post room. I have no idea what she was doing because nobody was there to give any post to. But she, I said, where is this clinic? Because it's not here anymore. And she very kindly put a scarf on and took me down the road to where the clinic was. And it was a brand new hospital, um, which I didn't even know existed. Um, I walked in, and they, it was a completely different system. You didn't go and register, and then somebody would find you. Your name flashed up on a flat-screen television, and you were told to go to a particular room. So after doing two of these navigations, I eventually found this door, which I knocked, and I opened the door, and there was a doctor. Um, <laughs> and she was a delight. She asked me three questions. I went and sat down. And she said, how are you? Which was a good start. And I said, I'm fine, actually. Thank you. And she said, how's your other testis? And I said, it's fine, actually. It's fine. Thank you very much. And then she asked a brilliant question, which was, are there any questions you'd like to ask me? And I said, I don't think so, no. And she filled in the x-ray form and the blood form and said, we'll make an appointment for another year. Thank you, I said. And that was the end of the consultation. So, I mean, consultations, what do I know about consultations? Um, I, when I was a, a, a real doctor seeing patients, I must have done hundreds, if not thousands of them, and was probably just like she was. And yet I came out with a profound sense of failure and disappointment that there had been no serious conversation, interaction, um, therapeutic relationship. It was a disaster, really. And I love University College. There was somebody from University College there. But, I, yes, we are very bad, aren't we, well, as are doctors? We? I mean, so just, you know, are we bad? I mean, that sounds like it achieved uh, said goal, you know. In the, <laughs> it, uh, well, it, it got time me to go home, really. I mean, it, 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 well, it could quite, you know. Is there... Are we in pursuit of some um, more meaningful connection, or appraisal of the, the, the actual biography of the patient and an understanding of their worldview and context? Do, do we need to do that? As, I mean, that's a genuine question now, yes. actually. Um, Not all of us do, but some of us certainly do. 
I mean, is medicine, is, I mean, of course, you know, there's a sense that medicine ought once used to do that and no longer does, how true that is, or whether, in fact, in a world of greater moral consciousness, we should be aspiring to that. Should we? Or is that, is that enough? Well, it's interesting, because in, in the field that, in which I work, it, I think most of my colleagues would probably say it's unnecessary, the extent to which I... Um, sort of engage the patient in conversation I, I sometimes end up getting life stories before we actually get to the to the examination room um, and I sometimes I think oh gosh, no, I'm taking too long over this I shouldn't really this is me in GP mode because that's what I used to be um, sort of getting these this background sense but but then I don't know the the, the you know it's quite an intimate thing I, I'm about to examine somebody internally and and indeed, actually, the other thing that occurred to me when we were talking about bodies and, under, and people understanding their bodies, show them their cervix on the screen if they wish to see it. And, I mean, that's not something that's given to most women, uh, the opportunity to see their cervix. And most women, kind of, if they do look at it, cannot believe the appearance of this thing. Um, but it's quite an intimate thing to do. And I suppose part of it is acknowledging that fact that there needs to be at least a bit of time for you to kind of get a sense of me before we do... Now, now some people might argue it's a hell of a lot better if that doctor is completely anonymous to you. But I suppose it's, you know, it's part, personally part of my practice to feel that somebody should get a sense of who you are. So that, And then when the consultation comes to an end, then uh, you... Uh, it, the, there is a kind of... The sense that there has been some some sort of human connection there. So, it, you know, very often the patient, which has been happening increasingly frequently recently, will stick out their hand to shake mine, which is not something that happen, happens to me very often, but it, it, it has been happening. But So I think, I, think there, I feel a need to make a connection, a human connection with the, with the patient in these circumstances, even though one's carrying out something that's highly... You know, governed by a particular way of doing things. So, what I might just, I might just say then, so is it purely that this is important as part of civil and polite discourse? And um, when you say you feel the need to mm. make that connection, what's my answer to. Are there any surgeons in the audience? No, okay. So, what's my answer to <laughs> the. Uh, <laughs> Um, the surgeon who arrives, um, you know, grandly pinstriped mm. and feels that actually that's a redundant exercise and uh, we just better, better get on with the business of medicine. Well, who in the room would rather see Jane or Richard's doctor? That's the first question. Um, and, and the second one is it, it goes so much beyond the technical. Um, what does? The, 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 the requirements of the interaction. Right. Uh, and, and largely because of what Richard's doctor feels like at the end of the day. If they're not, you know, she's hardly been stimulated by him, has she? I mean, you know. <laughs> he said yes, yes, and no, as far as I can see, or, 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 or that's the summary. And whereas actually a, a life in consultation is the most fascinating thing, and it's part of. Um, it's um, Simone Weil, isn't it, who says, you know, to say to somebody you do not interest me is, is an act of violence. Um, and I think your doctor was really implying that you were pretty uninteresting, which is clearly a, a bad assessment. Um, uh, uh, and, so, and it's also that process of, 
of, of making the other person feel recognised and seen. We did a rather good project in the Royal College of GPs years and years and years ago about patients who didn't speak English uh, at different communities. And one of the important things I learnt from that was that when you're working through a translator, you should use your hand to indicate comprehension. So if the translator says they've got a pain in the knee, what you need to do is stretch out and touch the, right, the, the appropriate knee um, in order to show that the message has, has got through. So it, it's those things about making people feel understood. And and if, 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 if I'm sure your, your doctor was bored by the end of the day, and boredom is a failure of imagination. And, uh, uh, and we have a responsibility not to do that. So there's a potential detriment to the healthcare professional in terms of their enchantment or otherwise but more than yeah, that. Well, it takes us to this word wonder which you raised a little bit in some of your briefing documents which I think is really really important because um, you know one of the problems I think with routine general practice and I haven't been doing it for a while is that you can get terribly bored I suppose with the things that come through you know and what are the ways in which you can you know you can stimulate your, your interest I mean, what's so wonderful about about the patients that come through the door is they, they you know they may be coming for me with this exactly the same problem but they've completely we all completely got completely different stories and you can I'm I'm astounded by the the you know people come in, in the door and tell some of these stories and then and then they've got the courage to get on the couch you know um, and and you think God this is an extraordinary person and you're kind of humbled by that sense of how amazing this woman is and I, I, I mean I think the other the other issue for me uh, about pay, paying attention and I think that's one of the things about general practice in particular paying attention to the sort of longitudinal change and adaptation is that one's continually brought to a state of wonder at how how patients can adapt and change even in the most adverse and difficult dreadful circumstances isn't that extraordinary and I mean Javi Carroll writes about this in her wonderful book on illness about the potential for human beings to to adapt to forget the ways they were embodied within the world and the ways in which they interacted with the world to to change to develop to be to have a different being which has its own satisfaction and joy and pleasure in the world even though differently abled she writes, and that's, to me, I think, an extraordinary thing that um, that you can see the the body in this constant sort of dialogue with the with 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 the, the world around it, including the clinicians, including your your own social world, as Charles was suggesting, including the spaces and objects and things that you have to move around, um, and then changing and adapting, and this is the most extraordinary creative way, um, and I think that almost. It, in some ways, it happens imperceptibly, but if you encourage, if you bring patients to a realization of what the amazing things they're achieving, I think that can be, you know, hugely satisfying for both parties. So I think this comes back to our attitude to disease. Um, it's almost as if we're surprised that disease is around us, and, and when it suddenly hits us, then it's something we've got to get rid of. Um, which is really bizarre because we are all going to die of something which is likely to be some kind I mean we could get run over in Cheltenham tonight but you know it's probably going to be a disease <coughs> of some sort um, so why is it that we are so resistant to it I mean disease is not 
a destiny. It's not something we're condemned to. It's, a, it's part of our life. In a sense, it's an instrument of, of life. Um, and the notion that you can cure or recover from disease is also strange because after a disease, you're not the same person as you were before um, you had, had a disease. So I think it invites us to think a little differently about the nature of disease, actually to embrace it, to say that disease... Um, what, what is it? We, we, we learn it as doctors as, as pathology. But actually what it is, what disease does is it changes our relationship with our environment, the people around us, the world we live in. And for some, it diminishes our capacity to, to live in that environment. So what's the purpose of medicine? Um, of course, the purpose of medicine might be cure um, at one level or recovery at another, at another, but perhaps more fundamentally, the purpose of medicine is to um, work with the patient to reimagine their life with that disease or as that disease is being treated in their environment. In other words, to enhance their capability, to enhance their adaptability in that environment. And that's a very different mission for medicine. It's a mission that understands the fact that, that the, you don't put the patient in brackets when you deal with, the, with their disease, that it is the patient that you are dealing with in their environment. And I think sometimes the way we're taught medicine strips that out of, of, of that um, learning. So I think we actually need a radical transformation about the way we think about the concept of disease. Um, we should embrace it. I've got here from you, Richard, a quote, actually, from your book from some years ago. The central challenge for contemporary medicine is epistemological. How can patients and doctors share ways of knowing about disease that enable each to fulfil their expectations of one another? So arriving at some shared conception. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, when we, when we learn medicine... Um, we're taught that the relationship with the patient, for the doctor, the patient owes us something, and that is information. And the purpose of the consultation is to extract information from the patient. You mentioned the word complaint. Even that word itself is so bizarre that the patient comes with a presenting complaint. <laughs> and then the job is to find out the history of that presenting complaint. And then we ask a series of questions about all their symptoms and, the, and so on and so forth. And then we do a physical examination and we do some investigations. So that's what the patient owes us. What do we owe the patient? What, what is it we are giving back to this? It's not, I mean, is it just the diagnosis and, and the treatment? I hope it's more than that. But What is it then? Well, I think that it, it is this sense, I think, of, of understanding the context of the illness in the environment that the patient is living and in a sense putting ourselves in in the life of the patient and trying to help that patient work with that patient to adapt to the circumstances of their illness which is a very different purpose for a doctor to adopt um, because what it is it's about the identity of the person in front of you um, it's about their personality. And that's something that actually, as much as I admire science and admire the contribution science has made to medicine, actually one of the costs of science has been to strip that out of modern medicine. Because? Because in order for science to be successful in medicine, you have to abstract disease from the person. Pathology, pathophysiology is all about taking 
that disease as something that is separate from the identity of a human being, understanding it now in molecular terms and designing treatments for that disease. And that, that becomes your entire therapeutic purpose. It's very hard to then relocate the identity of the person in that context. So I think science has brought enormous benefits, but there's been a tremendous cost. And it's a cost that we barely we can barely look at because we know deep down in our hearts that it has stripped the humanity away from medicine and it's something we're ashamed of and we have to confront it. So how then... Um, that, I mean, that, the, I guess the word humanity does it for us. How then do the humanities... <coughs> How does art, loosely conceived or artistic um, conceptions of the world, inform that um, appraisal of the humanity in front of us? Can it? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I think you're right, Richard. One of the issues for me, though, is I, I certainly, and I think I welcome this comment, because I, I don't think medicine can entirely do that, because I think... and it, you know, who knows, this might change, but the ways in which we're brought to understand our roles as doctors, the ways in which we're trained, gives us this kind of narrow vision of, of human life and context and, and relationship with illness and, and things. And one of, the, one of the things that's been hugely sort of revealing and, and um, liberating for me is working alongside artists in the, the work that I do in Durham. And, a particular example, which I think is revealing, I've been working recently with the writer Kathleen Jamie, along with an illustrator uh, called Bridget Collins. And um, Kathleen, as she's recently written about in, in the copy of Medicine, uh, Granta's Medicine uh, uh, publication recently, has written about her experience of breast cancer um, and about the, the, her seeing... Uh, the line of a scar upon her body. Um, now, Kathleen is one of these one of these wonderful writers who's able to write about the natural world with extraordinary power and vision. Um, and when she was looking at the scar of her mastectomy in the mirror, um, she realised it looked like uh, like a, a line of landscape or or or, or a, a twig, uh, the way in which it was shaped. And she thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to have an artist? draw this for me. She didn't know where this was going to take her, but she then decided to, because she knew and trusted Bridget, to spend some time with Bridget having her draw this scar. And what came out of this process, and she writes about it, you must look, up, look this up online, um, it's a, was, a, was a process of recovery which was partly fueled by the fact that she began to notice how she was being looked at and how that looking of the artist at her was so qualitatively different from the looking of the surgeon. And how, being, how it felt to be seen by an artist rather than by a surgeon. Now, that was not to say that the surgical operation was not hugely successful and marvellous. But being seen with this mark on the body was a very different experience. And the second thing about it, and I recently met up with Bridget again, was this process how, uh, of, of how... The scar sort of left her body and became something beautiful 
on the page, illustrated in these different ways from this wonderful um, uh, rose, uh, rose kind of um, twig to a wonderful, beautiful line of, of landscape off, off, the, uh, off the shore and with light coming, coming from below it. And she could then see it as separate from herself and see how beautiful it looked. And, and, and it's been a steady process of recovery um, that, that has taken this, 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 um, this mark of her illness away from her body into something beautiful and revealing. So I think, I mean, that's one example. There's lots of different examples. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't want to go on. The kind of work that, that, that uh, Charles and I are engaged in on Voicing Project at the moment, I think, is another example. But I do think that it's absolutely essential for us in order to liberate our seeing to start to work with different perspectives and, and not to say, not to put, put those perspectives against the science but to bring it alongside the science, to bring it into conversation with the science, I've no idea where this is going to lead. And, and Ray and I had a brief discussion, and he said, well, the big problem with this is everything becomes superficial. And yes, that's a real challenge. You know, how do you have the kinds of conversations that enable you to challenge the, the science from a humanities and arts perspective? You need to be able to have them at a level that's deep enough to kind of start to think you know, because the science has gone so deeply that you need to be able to kind of get at that. And that's a big challenge. I don't know how we're going to do it. But Just in terms of your conversation with Rain, so in terms of the risk of something becoming superficial, you meant, i.e., the, the metaphoric case can just not be penetrative or, and yeah. just be very ephemeral, really. Is that, so not meaningfully engaging? You know what, I think what I mean is that in order to have a proper interdisciplinary conversation, you have to have some sort of understanding of of where somebody's got to with their neuroscience. Uh, um, you know, what, what, a brief example, in our project we've got a woman from English literature who's working on the, the medieval visions of monks and, uh, it, from, from medieval texts. And we've got um, neuroscientists who, who put, put voice series and fMRI scanners and, and sort of look at brains. And, you know, on the one hand, somebody's got to understand a little bit about what are the kind of, um, what are the, uh, uh, the, the conventions that surround the kind of writing that happened then. You know, what are we seeing? Are, are, we, are, we, are we, you know, they're privileging vision in those days, the, the visual um, sort of hallucination. You know, what's happening there as opposed to, you know, what, what, is it, what are the kinds of questions that we ask patients in the scanner? How does the scanner assess? What, does it, what is it doing? We need to understand those methods, I think, in order to bring people into conversations so that insights and ideas can, can move around in a conversation there. And I think that takes, that's time-consuming um, and it requires trust, I think, between and getting to know people. So, I, I mean, Iona, just coming back then almost to where, where we were at the start, we were asking what the value of... Uh, some kind of genuinely engaging consultation over a, over a tick box enterprise might be, and it, you know, wondering a bit about um, enchantment for the doctor uh, being is that you know is that enough in itself? And it's sounding as though people are saying, in fact, these are these things aren't distinguishable. That through some um, genuine attempt at um, 
biographic connection that actually the consultation unravels as something necessarily more complex, rightfully so, uh, almost as though there's a, a duty to do it as such if we're going to do it well or at all. Absolutely. I mean, we heard about medically unexplained symptoms earlier on, and I, I hate that mm -hmm. term. It's become a diagnostic category, which is mm -hmm. grotesque, really. And um, it, 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 I come back to the power of biography. You're going to understand things that medical science doesn't understand much more if you understand a bit of biography. Uh, it, it, just to, to take, for example, victims of torture... Mm -hmm. Um, who we regrettably see a lot of, the, the pain, the chronic pain that victims of torture often have has no detectable biological basis. But, my goodness, does it have a biographical basis? It's, a, it's, a, it's an echo that lives on in their experience. Um, so, so there's that part of it. Um, there's the wonderful Carl, Ed, Carl Edvard Rudebeck in, in um, Sweden who talks about existential anatomy and he talks about the fact that only doctors, several exceptions, combine the subjective experience of living a body with a theoretical understanding of how that body works. And that, that gives the doctors a very particular um, responsibility and he talks about bodily empathy. It's nothing to do, in a way, with the imagination. It's trying to mirror in your own bodily sensation to think through how you, how you understand the description. So I, I personally have found that very, very useful. Yeah, can I just build on that in, in the sense that this is also about the nature of truth? Um, so... You know, medicine has become such a... Do you such think Ray and Rupert got it wrong this morning? Hmm? Do you think Ray and Rupert had it wrong on the nature of truth? No, I... I you can tell us. We wouldn't tell I them. thought they were, they, they were wonderfully um, uh, engaging, and I tweeted all ten of Rupert's dogmas <laughs> to try and get some discussion going about... His, um, medicine's been so phenomenally successful over five centuries or so in Britain and globally because... What it's do done is to say nature is untrustworthy, um, and we have we have we've taken we've been so successful as a profession we've taken power um, away from nature and invested it in the profession of medicine in terms of understanding and treating disease, um, and what that's meant is that the message that goes out to the public is don't trust nature. Don't trust your own sense of, of your feelings about illness and disease. You need validation from us. We're the ones who are the professionals. Uh, Mary Dixon Woods did some work a decade ago now, which I think was absolutely, unbelievably important. It's one of the most important papers I think we've ever published, beyond all the randomized trials and all that nonsense we publish. Um, <laughs> she, she did a very simple thing. She went to 20 families, uh, families of um, children who'd had a diagnosis of cancer. And she spent a long, long time taking interviews from them. And when she went and did that and then looked at all the time course of it, in all of those families, um, she found that way before they ever interacted with a doctor, um, the parents had noticed odd things. 
um, vague symptoms, things not quite right, strange symptoms of pains and, and discomforts and changes in behavior and emotional changes too. And then they would go and see their doctor. And there is no difference between primary and secondary care here. It was, it was the whole health system. And it didn't matter what level of the health system they were at, but they found that the initial response from the medical profession was one of instant distrust. Oh, no, 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 it's fine. You know, they've eaten something, it's a cold, a squint, something strange. Um, but don't worry about it. Can't, really, you know, uh, it's perfectly all right. You're, you're just getting a little bit over-anxious. And in all, each case... Um, the child went on to have a diagnosis of leukemia or a solid tumour. Um, I think what we've done, again, a cost, is that we have destroyed the confidence of, of people to believe in their own judgments, to believe in the sense of that they know themselves better than we as doctors can ever know them, that they know their children better than we as doctors can ever know them, and that they may well be picking up signals and signs of something not quite right, that we as doctors should actually pay enormous respect to. But very often in our busy, and somebody said it earlier, there's no time for anything, but in our busy health system, we, we say... You can't trust your sense of the truth. We have a better truth, and it's against our truth that we will measure your presenting complaint. Um, and something's gone very wrong in our understanding of that word, truth. And I think we need to move the centre of gravity back out towards the public or the patient. Jane, that resonates a bit with something you said earlier, almost as though in the consultation there is wisdom that can be gleaned from the patient. And and, uh, Ridian Brooke, who's on later on, um, did a thought today on Wednesday, almost where spiritual wisdom was gleaned with an encounter with with a patient. Um, That's that's something that isn't necessarily... uh, in the spotlight, is it? That, that direction. I mean, yes, we get information, we get the percentage complaints, whatever. Yeah. But in terms of actually getting, getting wisdom. Yeah, the wisdom back yes. so that it then resonates or, or loops between, yes. between the two yes. of you. I, I, I mean, just listening to your, your account of that paper, Richard, I, it reminds me of a call out I had when I was a trainee from a woman who, the only thing she said to me on the phone was, my do- daughter's face is disappearing. And I thought, what on earth is going on here? She couldn't tell me anything except her daughter's face was disappearing. So I went out to see her, and uh, I didn't know what was going on. Um, but she didn't look very well, so I sent her into hospital. It turned out she had a, she had a blood sugar of about 50 and was developing insulin-dependent diabetes, this young girl. I'd never seen it before. But that, that I mean, I think these are profound instances that teach you things actually, that, that suddenly kind of... I'll never forget that, and I'll never ignore anything odd that a parent said to me thereafter. Yeah. But it, it, I, think, I think that's right. I mean, it, and this issue about truth is a, is a fascinating one. I mean, I, I'm, I, I don't, don't profess to be a, a, uh, an expert in, in William James, but because of this, I was reading a little bit of his book on uh, varieties of religious experience, because he... Um, you know, he, he writes of uh, um, those who he calls medical materialists um, dismissing religious 
experience as being sort of uh, um, like um, somebody having a, a problem with their liver or, or a kind of hysterical fit. Um, and, you know, so what is truth? What, what it, truth is something that's so meaningful to people that, of course, it has effects in their lives. And so what does truth mean in these circumstances? So, but one of the things that I think that, that um, Iona raised a bit earlier on was this issue of, which I think is very interesting, the issue of what are the biological effects of biography? And, and the you know, and indeed the biological, biological effects of one's sense of, of one's belief about one's position within the world. Um, I, within my field, one of the things I, I, I was looking at recently was, was this idea that, that um, people, women have a, an earlier menopause. Uh, it's, it's been uh, reported in, in studies that they, they have a menopause earlier if they have lower um, educational attainment, um, have experienced divorce or separation, um, the perception that they're on the, in, in, in some sense in the lower social frame and haven't, haven't succeeded so well, a sense of failure actually seems to have a biological effect. And when we were talking earlier on about, about science and, and um, one of the things that came up in my mind was one of the difficulties we had are, it's not just it's not just the nature it's, it's the nature partly the nature of the questions we ask but part, partly the nature of the methods that we have access to because those kinds of questions are very difficult to answer you know what is it why is it that a woman has an earlier menopause if she feels like the dead end of society and and, and feels unsuccessful how can one how can we measure that with the with the 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 resources we have in our, in, our, in our grasp in science. And it's these kinds of questions, I mean, or, or should we be asking that question? Is that just a truth that we Can I come in? I mean, it's really powerful. I mean, I think the, the scientific evidence is more and more powerful around um, biographical effects. I mean, it isn't just an early menopause. We know that uh, women who have experienced uh, partner violence, women who are charged with looking after sick children have shortened telomeres, so they have premature cellular aging. Yeah. Um, and we know that children who are exposed to adverse child events die considerably earlier. So if they have six adverse child events, you know, things like having a parent in prison or having a parent die or being abused in all the multitude of horrible ways that children can be abused... If you have six of those, you die 20 years on, on average earlier than somebody who hasn't had no, none of those events. That is much more powerful than almost any biological so-called determinant that we know. That's what I mean about coming the end of a paradigm. And when I'm just speaking, I, I, I want to come to dying because that's where um, that you asked about um, what's, what is more to the purpose of medicine. The purpose of medicine has always been to, to be part of the care of the dying, that then the science is not getting you anywhere, and you have to go back to the subjective conversation between two human beings who share finitude and vulnerability and uh, and all those things that we share. And doctors, of course, have no particular aptitude for that, but uh, and they not haven't much training for that. But it's a responsibility that we have to. Shoulder, and that's why we need so much a broader view of humanity than than is just in science. 
interesting to see this may come out in this conversation as to whether, in fact, you know, doctors are particularly bad at it, but nurses and other healthcare professionals might flourish within that um, 